Let's talk about baptism. In the Church of the Nazarene, we recognize two sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist. In this episode, we're going to focus on baptism and we hope to give you a stimulating conversation on the subject. And there's a lot of questions and points of confusion on the top of baptism, so we hope that we can come to this topic with some resolution. Welcome to Kingdom of the Lagos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor Jay Dylan Proctor, and here with me in the studio are a few others. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. I'm Pastor Anthony Alegria. And I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. So today we're going to begin by discussing Article 12 in the Church of the Nazarene. So if you have a Nazarene manual, this is the 12th article. That's really what we're going to be looking at. Though in the next few podcasts, we're going to talk about Article 13. We're going to talk about the Eucharist, which is more commonly known as Communion or the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to have another podcast after that where we actually talk about the concept of sacraments themselves. But we do want to throw this out there as a quick reminder. Make sure that you are supporting your local church. Again, we want to be something that is a supplemental tool in your Christian wall. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, CastBot, Facebook. Download us. Please take us with you wherever you go. That will be doing such a great thing to help us out. Just grabbing a link, sharing it with your friends is a great help. If you'd like to donate monetarily, you can do that at patreon.com slash kingdom of the logos. But, of course, make sure you are involved in a local fellowship. So let's begin with baptism. And let's begin by reading the 12th article of faith in the Nazarene Manual. Pastor Amanda, would you read us Article 12? It reads as follows. We believe that Christian baptism, commanded by our Lord, is a sacrament signifying acceptance of the benefits of the atonement and incorporation into the body of Christ. Baptism is a means of grace proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. It is to be administered to believers indicating their full purpose of obedience and holiness and righteousness. As participants in the new covenant, young children and the morally innocent may be baptized upon request of parents or guardians. The church shall give assurance of Christian training. Baptism may be administered by sprinkling, pouring, or immersion. All right, so for the new believer, baptism is something very important. Or if you're someone new to the church and you're looking at faith, baptism is something very important. It is an outward sign and an inward grace. It is incorporation into the body of Christ. And let's have a conversation about this because there are a lot of questions that people have. And even people that may be new to the Church of the Nazarene, maybe you're not part of the Church of the Nazarene, people always want to see where things line up. And really with something like baptism, where where does it fit in the whole Christian sphere? What does it fit in the position of our theology? So let's go through some questions and see if we can find some resolution. And we're going to get to some more serious ones, but let's start with some more basics about baptism itself. So if someone comes to the church, and they've not been baptized, maybe they're a new believer, and they ask the question, you know, why should one be baptized? What What is a good answer to that? When y'all hear that question, why should one be baptized, what are your thoughts? Pastor Amanda, I'll throw it to you first. Right. Well, um, as we talk about baptism, we said earlier it is an outward sign of an inward grace. Um, others would also talk about sacraments as a means of grace by which we participate in that grace. And so it, it's this very... A physical confession of something that is happening. And, and so why should one be baptized? It is that, that someone has come to the understanding or the belief uh, that they need to confess and proclaim uh, what God is doing in their lives. And so they come to be baptized because they want to participate in that confession very, very publicly, um, but also uh, within that community uh, that they are a part of. All right, Pastor Mike. Well, I just wanted to say, you know, I, th- I think uh, one of the things that Pastor Amanda is saying is that it is that outward sign, that confession, that 
testimony that says something has happened in my life that it's not so much should I be baptized, but I must be baptized, that I must be a part of this body of Christ. Anthony? Um, my answer would just be a lot simpler and just that uh, we are commanded to by Jesus Christ. Um, you know, if you follow the logic, a lot of people will say, well, I can confess Christ in a number of other ways. I don't have to be baptized, you know. And um, really, if you just look at it from that standpoint, you could say, okay, well, really, there's no real reason for baptism. It's just a ritual or a tradition, which I think it goes well beyond that. But I think the bottom line for me is just that Christ did say, um, repent, be baptized, and you will inherit eternal life. And that for me is the bottom line for why Christians especially should be baptized. Yeah, and, and that's a, a good thing to point out. we got some different perspectives on that. And Pastor Mike, you said something about there's a moment in someone's life. And I wanted to take this to the next step of saying, when should a person be baptized? When should one be baptized? Pastor Mike, respond to, to that a little bit. Well, you know, there are two, two different places you could go for the adult, a, a believer, uh, being baptized, you know, I think it, it comes when that that um, that experience of knowing Christ, becoming a believer, becoming a person of faith, and wanting and not only to be obedient to what Anthony said, you know, to Jesus, uh, to that command, but also it is that identifying with God and the salvation that has taken place. It's a it is again like. We just say this over and over again, the outward sign of the inward grace. And so it happens um, for the believer when they get to that point where they, they realize, I must be a part of the kingdom of God, that God's salvation, I want to, to uh, be. And so we look at baptism not only as a cleansing, but also being birthed um, into a kingdom. So it's born again. Pastor Amanda, he mentioned a little bit of, of infants and when one should be baptized. Would you talk to us a little bit more about that, when one should be baptized, and even how we deal with infants when that situation may occur? Okay. So um, a lot of people come from, from different traditions, um, but there is a, a prevalence of the tradition of infant baptism, and we mostly see that uh, within Catholicism and other kind of high liturgy churches. And so we might, as Protestants, as Nazarenes, American holiness, kind of down that vein, we might not often talk about it, but that is a provision that is provided uh, through both our um, tradition and through our manual about infant baptism. And so as we're talking, a lot of the language we are using seems to kind of more emphasize the believer's baptism, the baptism of those um, who have come to kind of moral maturity. They have recognized uh, that they are in need of a savior, that that only comes through Christ and have then um, confessed that trust in Christ. Um, but there is a provision for those who, who are young, who have not quite reached that age of um, maturity, that, that they can be baptized. So when does that happen? Usually, traditionally, that happens um, shortly after the child is born, or some parents might wait to like the first birthday. Uh, a lot of parents do that with like kind of, um, you know, the first haircut for first birthday, first baptism, kind of roll that all into a, a similar uh, time frame. And that way they're a little bit old enough, not really to uh, know what's going on, but they're a little bit more uh, manageable, maybe the right word for that. Um, and, uh, and so, and also like, you're also thinking of like handing it off to a pastor and what they're kind of comfortable with doing. Um, but infant baptism really, even though I say infant baptism, it always doesn't just happen with infants and like that little short time frame shortly after birth. Um, 
uh, but it, it can move into closer into the toddler years. But anyways, so it happens and it depends on really your tradition, what you're comfortable with as a parent or a guardian, and then also what your pastor is comfortable with. Uh, but there's an important word or phrase that is in our article of faith that makes us very, uh, what makes infant baptism very distinct when we're talking about it. It says that then the parents and the church shall give assurance of Christian training. And so infant baptism cannot be done outside of the context of the church. And really no baptism can happen outside the context of the church, but especially when we talk about infant baptism, because we are still saying that that child still has to grow into maturity. They still have to make that personal movement uh, towards accepting God's grace. That infant baptism does not save you. Really neither does believer's baptism, but it is God who saves you. But we are confessing that that child um, is being born into a community and therefore that community must make the response in baptism. Uh, and really that community makes that response in all baptisms, regardless of the age of the person, that that believer um, or child is going to be surrounded by someone or someones uh, who are going to train and encourage and disciple. Um, so when does that happen to get back to the real question, or I guess our thesis question? Uh, it depends, um, but it has to happen, I think, when then the parents and the community are willing to make that step. And so to give some certainty and clarity on all this, in the Church of the Nazarene, we say, look, people need to be baptized. If you were not baptized as an infant, you can be baptized as an adult. But if you were someone who was baptized as an infant, you know, that, that is something which we see as being a real and holy thing. There's there's a attribute of that which we honor. We say this is this is not something that is looked down upon or disregarded. I know there are traditions that say, well, if you weren't baptized under these circumstances, you're not baptized. Not the case in the Church of the Nazarene, but at the same time, we do couple it with standards. As Pastor Amanda was saying, you know, the child needs to be brought in, trained, and brought up. But this does bring us to the question of, you know, there's a lot of traditions and people will say, well, how does one be baptized? And sometimes people will get a bit uneasy. They'll say, well, was I really baptized if I was sprinkled? You know, if I was submerged in something which was more like a, a hot tub than it was, you know, the River Jordan, you know, am I, is my eternal security at stake here? There's a lot of questions that people have. But we actually went back to one of the earliest supplemental text that was going around with the church. We have the Didache. If you've ever heard of that, it's basically a, if you could call it a book, it's really just more of a short document that was circulating in the early church. And it kind of was a teaching on how things should go. And baptism is one of the topics covered there. And actually, Pastor Amanda has that. Would you share with us what the Didache says concerning baptism? It says concerning baptism, baptize thus, having first rehearsed all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost in running water. But if thou hast no running water, baptize in other water. And if thou canst not in cold, then in warm. But if thou hast neither, pour water three times on the head in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And now we know this is from the early church because it does <laughs> use King James English. Um, <laughs> and that's that's how you know that it is truly ancient. Um, it is authorized before the King Didache. It is the authorized Didache, um, and do not question it. Of course, that's a joke. Um, this was translated into King James English. Um, this would have originally not been in King James English. Uh, so, anyways, back to things more serious. So, one of the big takeaways is they said when you baptize someone, and this is ancient tradition. I mean, this is basic Christian orthodoxy for the last you know, two thousand years. Our, our history. They need to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son. And Holy Spirit, or as translated into King James English, Holy Ghost, um, but baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So 
that's important. But then also it does say that if you can have running water, that's good, aspire for that. If you don't have running water, you can use another source. Um, if you don't have cold water, you can use warm. And if you don't have access to any body of water, sprinkle. And again, sprinkle the water three times. And in the first time, in the name of the Father, secondly, in the Son, and third, in the Holy Spirit. So there's the repetition of the three there, and it is consistent with matching the Trinity. Uh, when we were getting ready for the show today, though, I know in show prep, Anthony had said something about how he liked the structure and order of just going from running water to the sprinkling. Oh, yes. Um, I actually think it's it's very reflective of Christianity's um, teaching and practice in itself in that there's sort of a, obviously there's the aspiration. You want running cold water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And, you know, it's even better if these things can be rehearsed. So it's very outlined, very clear what um, the aspiration is here. But Christianity also understands where um, the shortcomings of legalism are, and it doesn't allow itself to fall into that. And so by making sort of this um, hierarchy of preferences where you're approaching the aspiration, you're approaching what um, is preferred, it also makes it available to all in pressing circumstances, and it makes it uh, much more comprehensive and much more about the spirit of the law rather than the letter. Yeah, and Pastor Mike, you had also supplemented this with something about the cold water versus hot water because it seems to, to me and just about anyone who's a, a human that if you're going to do something in water, you kind of prefer hot water. I mean, we're, we're <laughs> mammals. We don't want it too hot. We don't, don't boil us here. But, you know, we generally like things to be a little... A little more comfortable. But but at the same time, there's something to the order. And you may have heard Amanda say cold, and if you can't have cold, then hot. You know, that, that actually is in there. Why is that? You know, that may be a little confusing to well, us. Well, the reasoning behind that, and, of course, this is believed uh, by many, many scholars to be affiliated and associated with uh, Matthew's congregation, whether Matthew wrote it or <clears throat> someone out of his congregation. The document. The document the itself. But, you know, this all goes back to Jesus was baptized in the river Jordan and so you've got all of this uh, you know water coming out of the mountains is extremely cold and so when you are baptized you're baptized much like Jesus in the river Jordan if you can find cold running water uh, the other thing is if you've ever uh, been in some cold water and this is being born again it is the baptism it is the birth and it is what we call the initiation sacrament. But when you go under that cold water, when you come up, your mouth is open and you are gasping for air. And it's that same uh, echo of that of a newborn child, an infant. All right, so another question people may have is, should one be rebaptized? Perhaps if they are returning to the faith, if they are someone who is experiencing personal revival, you know, should you be rebaptized? Earlier, Pastor Amanda was talking about someone's first baptism. And we don't want to sound like someone where you, you have a baptism every year, like you've got someone who's <laughs> 13 and they're on like my 14th baptism. You know, nothing like that mm -hmm. is, is what's going on. But should one be rebaptized? Where do we sit on that? How can we give people some clarity and certainty mm -hmm. on the question of, you know, maybe I was baptized as a child but never was in church. Now I'm, you know, 45 and I'm back in the church. Should I be baptized? Or someone saying, you know, I was baptized when I was a new Christian, but I've kind of felt sanctified and petrified for for decades. Or maybe I was just never baptized at all. You know, should one be rebaptized or 
I guess that doesn't apply to if you were never <laughs> baptized at all. But Pastor Amanda, give us some, yes. some direction on rebaptism. Well, I think the short answer is you do not have to be rebaptized, regardless of the situations. Um, and even in really, this is going to be kind of weird, in our tradition, even though we make room for infant baptism, there is kind of a, a, an idea that you will, should also be baptized again as a believer when you have made that kind of con- conscious decision. Um, but really, you don't have to. Um, because God's grace is sufficient. You have made that confession, um, and, and that is that is sufficient. Uh, however, there is room in our tradition for that to happen, but it must happen, I think, very carefully. And kind of like to your analogy of like someone who wants to be baptized once a year, that's not what this sacrament really is moving towards. It's not what that's calling people towards. Um, so that needs to be a discussion between that person um, or, or people and their minister, um, just kind of as understanding a bit better what really baptism is. If you feel like you have to be baptized once a year, I think that there needs to be a deeper conversation. Um, and also about like what it means to be consistent in walking with Christ and growing in Christ and being discipled. Um, now, for those who have kind of fallen from the faith and they want to re-enter it, um, I've heard a lot of ministers suggest instead of doing a whole uh kind of traditional idea of baptism, they do something where you remember your previous baptism. And so this might be a shorter ceremony. Often people are anointed with water and they are called to remember their baptism, to to remember that that time in which they first confessed um, Christ as Savior. And so there's a lot of different ways of handling that. Um, But I think the big takeaway is that although as Wesleyan Arminians, we do believe you can fall away from God's grace because of your choice uh, to turn your back uh, on what you once had accepted, um, we, we still proclaim that that, that baptism um, is, is, that first baptism was sufficient and that you had proclaimed uh, your entrance into the community. And if you ever decide to leave it and then re-enter, uh, there's something that says that, you know, God's grace was always present, even if you didn't accept it. And so that's kind of where that tradition goes in saying you don't have to be rebaptized. Um, but again, there, there's lots of different ways of tradition, not traditionally, but I guess practically handling that issue. And there are times where people, maybe they've got a family member being baptized or something has happened in their life, big changes. Um, could be a personal revival coming back, stepping away from a time of being backslid. It could be a tragedy. It could be a lot of things where people reaffirm their faith and they do something which looks similar to baptism. But again, we recognize that it's it's not you, your first baptism was sufficient. And, and now you are wanting to make that public symbol and that, that sign again that then inward grace is going on. That does happen as well. Pastor Mike, I think you had something to add to this? Well, you know, I think from a biblical standpoint, we we must understand that there is one baptism. And uh, I prefer to go down that that, uh, journey where we baptize once. And then if there is a place for uh, that reconnection, that re-identification, that um, you know, what, regardless of how that is, maybe it's shared in some type of testimony. So I think I like to uh, in, go kind of on Pastor Amanda's coattails that 
there is if you're married it, and perhaps there's been some problems and there wants to be a, a recommitment of the vows and and so are they married again you know legally and everything there was one marriage and if they never were divorced they're still married so there's no need for to have another marriage there's no need to have another baptism but sometimes people want to renew and refresh their vows and so I believe that's the direction and what she's saying and I think that's a that's good analogy. A, that's a pretty clever analogy for that. Um, we will debate later whether marriage should be a sacrament. <laughs> Again, um, the current understanding of, of sacraments we have in the church and pretty much all the Protestant world, you may have a few anomalies, but pretty much Protestant tradition is the, the Eucharist or communion and baptism. But at the same time, there's a lot of different traditions around baptism. Um, some people will say, you know, you shouldn't baptize infants. Another will say, no, you kind of must be. Um, let's just see if we can get an answer to that before we address some other differences within traditions on baptism. Uh, if one does have a child, should an infant be baptized? Is that something which people say, you know, it's necessary? Or where do we sit on that, Pastor Amanda? Uh, the short answer is, again, I think that an infant or, or child, small child, does not have to be baptized. There are some traditions that say if they're not and they pass away that they're they're quite uh terrible consequences for that and that is not part of our tradition as Wesleyans um, as Nazarenes um, however um, there in, in there's kind of an interesting tradition in, in the Protestant church where we're, we kind of for a time rejected infant baptism and then we're like okay but we need something in place of that so we came out with baby dedications um, and, and that's a really interesting contrast because I know in, in our church specifically, uh, we have baptized and dedicated the same child. <laughs> like when they were, were when they were like an infant, just a couple months old, they were uh, dedicated. And then when they were one, almost two, we baptized them. Or I've got that flipped around. I can't remember, but we did both. And I, I'm not quite sure, really. But I think what the parents were trying to do was say, we know that this child needs to be raised in the church. We we need this child. We need the help of the community to surround us with godly influence. And so we, we're basically, it's like, we need all the help we, we, need, we can well, get. S- speaking of people who need all the help they can get, Anthony's over there giving us the signal that he has something to say. <laughs> Anthony? I, I was just going to say, put them through all the traditions. Let's go. Break out all the traditions. <laughs> send them on through that, uh, not treadmill, what's it called? Assembly line <laughs> of Christian traditions and uh, raise, up, raise them up right. Well, I, I would say this, not all of them. Um, there are some things which are unorthodox that have somehow stuck around more as tradition than they should. Um, but again, all in jest. Anthony's pretty good, even though he's over there running things. Um, let's get to the topic of why are there so many different traditions on baptisms? And again, there are some things which people have done which don't really make sense to line up with the gospel. And there are other things that people do they that do make sense. There are times where traditions say, you know, you need to delay baptism. There are others which really kind of enforce this, do something with children or else there are bad consequences. Um, but one of the things which is pretty much universally true is that baptism is always treated as a sacrament. Again, Christianity 101, baptism, it is something that is, it is an important part of the church and the life of the believer and really the life of the church as a whole because it is an outward sign to the rest of the church community. It's an important thing to your church family and even to the world, non-believers. But there have been times where people have had confusion on this. Um, there's been whole eras in church history where people, they would hold off to baptism until the moment of death because they thought, you know, if you sin after baptism, you know, there's no repentance for that. The, just the fires of hell get cranked up. And you get a lot of people who would try to stave off baptism to the moment of death, which causes problems because we 
don't really know when we're going to pass. Um, I know in the past when we had Angela Marici, she was interviewed by Charlie, the church history dog. And Angela Marici looks a lot like Pastor Amanda. Um, I don't know why, but it, it is the case. But Charlie, the church history dog, when he was talking with her, uh, one of the things that really brought Angela to the level of ministry she had in the church is when she was young, she had a younger sister who died before being baptized. Um, and, of course, the two were orphans. Their parents had already died. But when Angela saw her sister pass before being baptized, she was really tore up. She said, you know, does my sister have eternal security? Is her salvation at stake because she was not baptized? You know, that's a good question just for us to answer now. You know, if someone passes before they're baptized, you know, is someone's salvation, you know, at stake? Pastor Mike? Well, I think uh, a great theology and understanding is that God's love and grace um, covers those who are unable to make decisions for themselves, whether it be the mentally handicapped or uh, an infant. However, uh, baptism, again, uh, especially the, is, a, is the outward sign and testimony of the inward grace of God. And so it is the grace of God, it is the work of Christ Jesus on the cross that salvation um, is, is attained through that work. So it's not any act or, or ritual that we can go through or certain formula, uh, but it is indeed the work of Christ Jesus and that is extremely important to know. Yeah. So, and, and, the, and there are there are instances in the Bible where we see, you know, obviously the thief on the on the cross. Um, I think to address that question, also, you know, uh, we are saved by grace alone and not by works. And our order, you know, this is a great thing about Christianity is that there is uh, aspirations, there is sanctification in it, there is the making holy of the Christian, and so there are definitely uh, great and glorious goals, but. Just because you don't meet all those doesn't mean that you're not saved. And again, we're not saved by uh, what it is that we do, but we're saved by what God does. And so that's where I think um, the start of the order of salvation is, is in the grace of God, really. And uh, in that, we can always have faith. Pastor Amanda? Well, I think this is really interesting, some of the angles we're coming to um, with this idea of baptism. And also when you were talking about earlier about how kind of there was this... um, not really early churches in like the first generation or maybe even the second, but as we're getting closer to the 200s and the 300s of the early church of this idea of staying off baptism because baptism was seen as something so completely holy and and sacred and it just like you just don't mess with baptism and then we kind of have this like almost pendulum swing um where we have kind of almost disconnected baptism from salvation and so now we're trying to I think put all the pieces back together because we're saying, okay, no, you're not saved by the sacrament or by the ritual, I'm sorry, by the ritual of baptism that you are saved by God's grace. Um, but at the same time, we're still saying that there's something quite magnificent, something quite mysterious that does happen in baptism that is vital for the life of the Christian. And, and so there's this, just this interesting, I think, conversation that, that happens around our sacraments because it, it is more then something we do, and, and going back to a definition I said earlier, it means a grace by which we participate in that grace. And, and also that, that God comes to not just save um, this abstract concept of a soul, but comes to save us entirely and completely. And that then our whole body, our whole self, must then be involved in that salvation. And so when we are saved, 
uh, often I think, especially in kind of the, the, the in modernity in the modern world, we make it very purely kind of heady and cognitive. Like I have agreed with all of the like checkoff lists and then so I am saved. And it's like, no, okay, your whole self has to be consumed um, by this water and that you are, you have shed the old life. The old life has been buried, has been drowned. And now you come out and you breathe new air because you, there is new life. And it's not, again, not just your soul, but all of you. And so the reason I say all of that, and I know I've gone off on a tangent, um, but is we have to realize just how important baptism is. And yet at the same time, not put it at a, in a place that it itself does not confess to be. Just like when we talk about scripture. Yeah. And to that point, you know, earlier I was kind of asking the question, why are so many different traditions out there around baptism? Because pretty much, again, Christian orthodoxy, even across denominations that are very different in other areas, they kind of say, you know, baptism is very important. You know, that's something that's kind of at the core of being a believer. Now, again, it's not salvation. I mean, we, we understand there are distinct concepts that are all logically connected and they come from a, a vein and they are gracious acts that are part of the life of the believer and the grace of God as it works in our lives. But baptism is one of those things where there is mystery in it. And you mentioned the word mystery earlier, Pastor Amanda. And I think a lot of the times why you see so many different traditions is because people are trying to explain away the mystery. And, and really, when you see people saying, well, we don't really know exactly how salvation works, we don't really know how sin and confession works, and this is actually, when we get to the argument of sacraments and what even is a sacrament, we're going to look at basically how the criteria for where the two are in the Protestant world. I think a lot of times when we don't properly address things like sin and one's ability to, to repent and even to be freed of sin, that's where you kind of get into places where someone may say, well, you know, stave that off to death because you don't want those fires to be cranked up. You know, you don't want to be in the deepest ring of hell, you know, if, you, if you're a believer. You know, that, that's worse in some traditions to be a believer who sinned. You know, you get a hotter hell than just somebody who may have never known Christ at all. And, you know, that's, you know, when you look at the gospel and you see God being a merciful God, you, you hear things of forgiveness, you can say, that doesn't totally add up. There's something missing here. But then you see other times where it's taken to other than the spectrum. And again, there's the mystery of, well, how does God deal with an innocence of a child? You know, someone who's who's born and maybe they don't live very long. Um, you know, you've got to have somebody to, to baptize the child the first thing it gets out. Because what if it only lives a few minutes? If it wasn't baptized, you know, it may not be saved. You find all of these different traditions. And I really think one of the fundamental reasons of the discrepancy is for people trying to explain away the mystery and address it, trying to have a, a stopgap in the things that we don't really understand. But we're going to come back to that in the, the coming weeks. Again, it'll probably be week after next when we're talking about sacraments in general. But we do have a little bit of a bonus conversation about sacraments today as it relates to baptism. But does anybody have any other pointers they wanted to have before we kind of get into this little bonus segment here? All hearts and minds look pretty clear. Yeah. For those of you in the audience, if y'all could only see what it's like to be inside the, the studio, <laughs> you kind of get the the stillness of it. Um, all right, so in the Church of the Nazarene, as said many times, we recognize two sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist. And, of course, the Eucharist is often referred to as the communion or the Lord's Supper. But the reason why these are the two that we have, and I think Pastor Mike actually has the book with him by Rob Staples, if... Anthony wants to cut over there. Yeah. yeah. Outward Sign and Inward Grace. It's a, it's a really good book. Yeah, it's a, a pretty good book. Um, so 
the in this book there is criteria given for why Protestant churches, and generally you'll find this in a lot of Protestant churches. Again, I recognize there are some anomalies out there, some some stuff. But generally, these two are accepted to be sacraments. And the reason why they are is as follows. The criteria is generally understood to be that it is a rite that should be considered a sacrament if Jesus established or initiated it. And now, you might say that and be like, well, weren't people practicing things like the Passover, weren't even people like John the Baptist out baptizing. Well, Jesus, he comes and he kind of adds something to that, and that takes us to the second criteria where they are a sac- the sacrament must have a physical sign or element or something such as water, bread, or wine, so there's sort of a physical element to it, and it must be accompanied by a biblical word of promise, and that's the third criteria and really where all this comes together. So one, it must be something Jesus, he participated in, he initiated it and commanded others to do it. it, must have a physical element to it, something like water, bread, or wine, or, or it says, it shouldn't be or, but and. Um, <laughs> the third criteria is that it must have a biblical promise accompanied to it. So that is the argument for why baptism and the Eucharist are the two which we ascribe to as being sacraments. Um, though in the Roman Catholic world, they have seven. Um, and they have baptism being the first, and then the second is reconciliation, which is often um, also called penance or confession. It's this idea that someone can confess something and repent and they can be forgiven, the absolution of sin. The third is the Eucharist, communion. Um, the fourth is confirmation. And confirmation is really actually an important topic to baptism. We were talking earlier about sort of the believer's baptism, as someone may call it, where someone comes back. There's sort of this moment that happens where you say, I, I'm actually stepping into being a believer, and I want to make a public statement that says, yes, these, this is Jesus Christ. This is what I'm going to follow in my life. And confirmation plays a role in that. Um, the, the fifth uh, Roman Catholic sacrament would be marriage, the sixth being holy orders, and the seventh being the anointing of the sick, or also known as unction. Um, just to clarify there, because if you don't know what anointing of the sink means, you probably know what the word unction means. Um, Another bit of comedy for you. But any thoughts on all of this before we we wrap up the program today? Pastor Mike? I would just like to say that even though uh, the Roman Catholic uh, seven sacraments don't totally meet what we would see the the Protestant criteria, they are extremely important to the Protestant world, and especially, as uh, you said, Pastor Mendes, I feel feel like uh, implied was that it, there is one baptism, and so if that infant was baptized, uh, you know, and and obviously not able to really have any type of belief at that young uh, age, then once they got older, there is that place for um, you know confession and confirmation, and uh, you know a catechism class or or a teaching and understanding. And that moves into baptism and, and um, or not baptism or the receiving of the uh, Eucharist. Right. And First again, communion. a lot of these kind of tie into one another, especially in the Protestant world where we don't have all seven and we kind of try to <laughs> finagle around. Like it, I really think the hymnal, especially in its modern form, is actually trying to finagle around and have a lot of slots. I think we've done the same thing with sacraments. Like we, we recognize there's baptism, but then we also kind of need something to do, something similar to confirmation. And with things like marriage and 
something like ordination, we say, you know, a general superintendent comes to do this. You know, only clergy, someone who's ordained or district licensed can be doing something like marriage. We kind of treat some of these other things a little bit sacramentally, even though they're not sacraments, but we're going to have a whole conversation on that another day. So stick around. It's a bit of a plug for two weeks from now. Any final thoughts, questions, or comments from anyone here in the studio before we close? Well, I do think, I mean, I know we're going to talk about it in two weeks, but I do think that's interesting, kind of the difference we do linguistically between a sacrament and something we treat sacramentally. Um, and so that will be, the, and I, I don't know, I wouldn't say it's a modern conversation, but it does seem one that's been gaining some uh, attention in, the, in, the, in recent years about people, especially within Protestantism, trying to debate what exactly is a sacrament and then what needs to be a sacrament, what needs to be sacramental, what is ordinary, what is sacred, basic, basically that's what this conversation is coming down to. What What is holy and, and what is uh, mundane? Um, what is casual? You yeah. Know, throw that in there because sometimes it's even the sacraments done a little bit. And so the, it's casual. just really, really interesting. And I think then kind of returning all of this back to a comment that Anthony made earlier, it starts with God's grace. You know, and again, something we harped on weeks and weeks ago, prevenient grace really needs to be closer to the beginning of our, our, our articles of faith than it is. But that's where this all starts. And I think if we have a good understanding of prevenient grace and God's grace, a lot of this, whether we call it a sacrament or sacramental or ABC, XYZ, um, it only finds its purpose in that. And so we have to make sure that God's grace is first and foremost in all of these actions, rituals, rites, whatever. And not only does it start with God's grace, but this program is ending with God's <laughs> grace. So God love you and have a blessed day. I don't think it was under 30. 42. What?